Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 34, The Main Road, recorded here on October 12th, just after the Canadian Thanksgiving. Thanks for joining me today. I'd like to send a continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. You can check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Death of a Dream, and our outro is Sleepyhead. We have corrections today. For an upcoming illusions section, I was reviewing one of the fundamental biotech companies that Crichton references, and I realized that I've been saying and spelling it totally wrong because I can't see or something like that. What I've been calling Genetech all this time is actually Genentech, with a second N stuck in the middle. So my apologies to anyone I've confused uh, or not credited properly. I'm sorry. Um, Once upon a time, I was at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, and that place was impossible to escape. I don't know... Where the exits were, it may as well have been named the Hotel California because you can you can check out anytime you like, but you know how it goes. I was almost looking to get myself kicked out because at least I'd be out. Well, apparently this wasn't just a me thing. This happens a lot, often enough that it's got its own Austrian name. Shopping malls and casinos are designed, in some cases, to deliberately disorient visitors, causing them to lose track of time and where they are, and it's officially known as Gruen Transfer, named after an Austrian architect, Victor Gruen, who built intentionally confusing layouts so consumers would spend more time and money. And no, I didn't know more than five Tina Turner songs, though I was sure that I did. What's love got to do with it? The best... Proud Mary, We Don't Need Another Hero, and Private Dancer. I only know five. The rest are proving to be unfamiliar. Wait, wait, wait! I Don't Want to Fight is a delightful throwback. In any case, (laughs) maybe I did know more than five Tina Turner songs. Who do I know? All right, Dinosaur News. The Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society published in September 2022, very recently, a new paper, Taxonomic, Paleobiological, and Evolutionary Implications of a Phylogenetic Hypothesis for Ornithischia. The origins of the Ornithischians are uncertain and confusing, somewhere in either the Late Triassic or the Mysterious Early Jurassic, which is heavily underrepresented in the fossil record. Dinky little Ornithischians blew up into some of the largest terrestrial animals to ever walk the Earth, but we don't know why. We don't know how. There are presently several competing hypotheses concerning the relationship between Ornithischians and other principal clades of Dinosauria. Quote, Some hypotheses have posited a tree topology within Dinosauria that imply a, quote, ghost lineage for Ornithischia, whose representatives make their first unambiguous appearance in the Hetangian that extends through a substantial portion of the Triassic time. Other hypotheses have placed conventionally Triassic dinosaur morphs, the stemlid lineage of Dinosauria, taxa within the clade Ornithischia. But a recent large-scale phylogenetic analysis recovered, quote, an array of taxa known as Silosaurids as a paraphyletic assemblage of taxa on the branch leading to the clade Ornithischian. Silosaurids are Triassic non-dinosaur animals that looked a lot like dinosaurs. They've got a fairly long neck and legs and were perhaps quadrupedal and came in about all the same sizes that you'd find dogs fit today, from quite big to fairly small. They inhabited a variety of ecological niches and included herbivorous and carnivorous species. 
This recent analysis that supposes that ornithischians derive from the Silosaurids of the late Triassic would account for the absence of ornithischians in the Triassic because they were all Silosaurids at the time. But that primary study which produced this hypothesis was lacking in a few notable ways. First, the analysis used a data set that in its original form did not include all early representatives of ornithischia and did not incorporate all the anatomical characters that have been suggested to unite Ornithischia with the other dinosaurian clades, Theropoda, Sauropodomorpha. Second, the initial study didn't go on to expand upon some important taxonomic, paleobiological, and evolutionary implications of a topology that links a paraphyletic array of Silosaurus to the clade Ornithischian. So, this new paper published in September aimed to address these latter issues by expansion and reanalysis of the original data set. This is sort of like listening to the critics, taking their advice, and then reinvestigating. Or in other words, this is sort of how science is supposed to work. Keep working the problem until the answers are satisfying. So they all put all this data into a, that phylogenetic analysis machine, including the bits of data that weren't included last time, and the results lent further support to the hypothesis that Silosaurus comprise a paraphyletic grouping of taxa on the stem of Ornithischian, and that successive Silosaur taxa acquire anatomical characters anagenetically in a process that culminates in the assembly of what may be described as a, quote, traditional Ornithischian. Quote, the data presented in this study represent a stage in our attempt to establish an early dinosaur data set in which character definitions and character scores are agreed upon and used consistently, say the authors, admitting that there are certain to be new discoveries that further inform this data, but they hope that the new structures that they have proposed will allow for a tidy topological tree. They say, quote, the overall topology of the consensus tree remains, but little changed from the original analysis, despite the addition of new taxa and characters. To provide stability to this area of the tree, and to preserve the most important of the relevant taxonomic names, we suggest a revised taxonomic framework for ornith ornithischians that is consistent with this new topology. Quote, we retain the name Ornithischia for the total group, traditional Ornithischia in it and its stem lineage, while we resuscitate a name originally proposed by Richard Owen, Prionodontia, or coarse-edged teeth, for the clade containing only the so-called traditional Ornithischians, which are the bird-hip dinosaurs, we also erect Parapredentata <laughs> as a more exclusive subclade in Ornithischia. This novel taxonomic framework is intended to provide phylogenetic clarity and a degree of stability in Ornithischia and Dinosauria as further analyses and new data continue to refine and reshape the tree. So, this study has slipped Silosauridae into the Ornithischian branch of the Tree of Life, reclassifying a whole family of animals as dinosaurs. This study might add a bunch of new critters into the dinosaur club. So that's kind of cool. Uh, in other news, the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology published on a new early Jurassic sauropod from the lower latitudes of Pangaea. The authors named a new medium-sized early sauropod from Colombia, South America, naming it Perihasaurus. La Paz. It's believed to have lived in tropical lowland forested areas around the torsian aelnian boundary, approximately between 180 and 170 million years ago, right at the boundary between the early and the middle Jurassic periods. The fossil, a well-preserved dorsal vertebra, was collected in the 1940s, and from it, researchers believe it demonstrates the initial diversification of sauropods at low latitudes, because it contains a unique combination of character states that reveal it is from a distinct new species. The phylogenetic analysis machine recovers the vertebra to be of an early eusauropoda, which are named as, quote, true sauropods, which basically means they're distinctly different from the Volcanodon and the Rotiosaurus, 
which fall outside the true sauropod lineage. These first appeared in the early Jurassic and have a global distribution. Recovering Periosaurus early in the eusauropod lineage reaffirms the perception that eusauropods, quote, achieved a broad geographic distribution during the early Middle Jurassic before the deeper fragmentation of Pangaea and after the Torsian faunal turnover documented at high, higher latitudes. Periosaurus and other basally diverging sauropods display an intermediate level of bone weight reduction in the axial column that represents an antecedent to the more highly developed pneumatic system characterizing neosauropoda, says the paper, meaning while the big sauropods had pneumatic bones, this critter was, quote, developing that pneumaticity, but hadn't fully achieved it yet. So in conclusion, the presence of Pariasaurus in the in the tropics of South America, along with its close phylogenetic relationship to Southern South American, Central North Northern African, European, and Asian species, suggests that sauropods diversified and dispersed fairly rapidly following the end Tauratian anoxic event. This paleogeographic pattern resembles that observed in other dinosaur groups, which achieved distributions from subtropical, arid, to tropical, seasonally humid climates. All right, that's a lot. With the corrections and dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. So anything yeah, else? It's all good. Okay. I'm goofy too. It's all good. I don't believe people in dinosaurs are too serious, so. <laughs> oh, no. Not at all. Until it comes to pronouncing the, the different shapes on a vertebra, and then, then you have to be very, <laughs> very strict about that. Yeah, right? and the way that different people pronounce different dinosaur names and stuff like that. You know what? We're going to get into that. All right. <laughs> Um, That's okay, I'm used to it. Joining me today is Rebecca Hunt Foster, who is a vertebrate paleontologist and lead park paleontologist at the Dinosaur National Monument in Jensen, Utah. Please join me in welcoming my terrific guest. How are you doing today? Good, how are you doing? I'm okay, thank you. It's nice that you're here. Rebecca and I first met in grade school, and we came head-to-head in a heated and divisive, fiercely political debate in Mrs. Crocker's class, arguing over whether or not Kansas should have its uh, pronunciations changed to Kansas, or whether Arkansas should change its pronunciation to Arkansas, because as it stands that these two states have the same spelling but different pronunciation is preposterous. Do you recall which side of the debate you were on? I'm definitely on keeping Arkansas, Arkansas, <laughs> and changing the way you would pronounce Kansas. I, I missed the emphasis on A in Kansas. <laughs> I think that your side won in that argument, and uh, I was expelled and extradited from the United States, as Mrs. Crocker was infamous for doing. So that was uh, it's nice to be uh, <laughs> reunited with you after all this time. It's, uh, it's fun having you on the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Can you, uh, when you, when you go back to your grade school days, can you recall, I think the dinosaur section that I did was in grade two. And I think I still have some of the paperwork, because I would never throw away anything with a dinosaur on it. Uh, do, you, do you remember having a unit or something like that on dinosaurs way back then? You know, I really don't remember when we would have covered dinosaurs, but I also moved around a lot as okay. a kid. And so it's very fair and likely to say that I may have skipped that moving around. So you moved around. Uh, you meant, I, I see in your bio that you're from, is it Arkansas and Oklahoma? Which one? Where did it? How's yeah. the, how did you hop from one to the other? What, uh, what came first? So I was born in Oklahoma and lived, you know, first first few years in Oklahoma. We lived in Texas for a short amount of time, and then we moved back to Oklahoma, and then we moved to Arkansas and bounced around in that state for a while. So my dad is a pastor, and my mom is a librarian. And so that's kind of why we moved around so much was for my dad's job. Oh, that's very interesting. And, well, you got to go to some neat spots, it sounds like. <laughs> Would they be in yeah. big cities or would you have stayed kind of rural or how did that play out? 
It was mostly rural. Okay. When, uh, when I was tiny, we lived in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area, and then we lived in suburbs outside of Oklahoma City, but um, in Fort Smith, Arkansas. But for the most part, it was in rural communities. Well, speaking of Arkansas, it looks like you uh, had a chance to help describe the Arkansasaurus. Is it Arkansasaurus? Yes. It's not Arkansasaurus. It's Arkansasaurus. But it looked like it's spelled Arkansas. Arkansasaurus. Um, which yep. looks like it was yep. a series so of fossils that were already in a collection but hadn't been described or something like that. Is that quite right? Yeah, they were discovered in 1974, and the paleontologist that was working on them actually died in an accident out collecting fossils. And so he, um, he died before I was even born. And then when I went to the college at the University of Arkansas, um, I found out that these fossils had never been officially described. So that is when I started working on those specimens for part of my senior thesis. So then I, I moved off and did other things and then came back to it um, a few years ago. And, and more work had been done on ornithomimids, the type of dinosaur that Arkansas is. And so I was able to better flesh out that story and finally publish on the dinosaur. And it was actually designated the Arkansas State Dinosaur the year before the paper came out, too. That's really cool. And the paper was 2018, I think. So that was uh, laying in repose for quite a while. (laughs) It was, yeah. I I worked on some other stuff. and, And sometimes paleontology moves slow and sometimes it moves really fast. Uh, I see that it's an ornithomimosaur, for people who aren't sure what it is. I remember when I was also in grade school that we had a project, I think it was grade six. We had to do something on feet or footwear or something, and I was uninterested entirely in doing the assignment. And uh, the teacher said, well, what do you like? And I said, well, I like dinosaurs. Well, do the dinosaurs have feet? And I was like, oh, well, there you go. (laughs) And so, of course, uh, I did an or I think it was an ornithomimus foot, and I did a, a Deinonychus foot. And uh, sure enough, so it's fine that you, you oh, also cool. do uh, an ornithomimosaur feet, uh, although I'm sure more at a, yeah. higher than a yeah, grade six level. <laughs> a little different, but I always like to tie in ornithomimids. I mean, they're both theropods, so that helps. But I always like to remind people that ornithomimids and ornithomimosaurs are basically the dinosaur that we see in Jurassic Park, the movie, that's running, you know, away from the Tyrannosaurus Rex and that Tim says they're walking this way mm-hmm. for and they kind of have to run and hide behind a dead tree and watch a, a tyrannosaur eat one of these poor things. Mm-hmm. And so I always like to remind people that ornithomimids have been seen in pop culture. And it was an early Cretaceous, it looks like. Is that the what you get in Arkansas, some early Cretaceous rock? Or do you get a bit of both or a lot? I know in Texas it yep. spans the... Yep, mostly early Cretaceous rock, yeah. Right. But in Arkansas, there's not a lot of Cretaceous rock in general exposed. And most of it's exposed in in creeks because there's so much vegetation in Arkansas. So had there been any studying of that uh, that that foot at all? Or were you kind of like uh, one of the first eyes to really go over it in detail? Yeah, um, Dr. Quinn, who had worked on it initially, did the initial work. And then it didn't really receive a lot of attention for the next, what was it like, you know, I guess <laughs> all of the 80s and all of the 90s and into the, into the early 2000s when I started working on it. And then I wrote the final paper on it in 2018, or it was published in 2018. That's really cool. So I don't know if I looked into this, and I probably should have. But um, so with um, with an ornithomimosaurus foot, how is that comparable to? Is there? Do you even have dinochirid feet? Like, is there? They were 
related in sort of an ancestral sort of way where one is perhaps more derived than the other is it possible to identify whether or not yeah. the foot belongs to a dinochyrid yet uh compared to an ornithomimosaurus? No, yeah ours are all the archinosaurus and the things i'm looking at in the early cretaceous are more early forms yeah. of those kinds of dinosaurs and they're not they're more slender and you know while they are large they're built more for speed whereas a dinochyrid they're like heavier and bulkier and and not going anywhere super fast. They're mm -hmm. mostly like hanging out in these maybe estuary areas and feeding in those areas mm -hmm. instead. So it's probably some sort of divergence happening there. So you would be able to tell for sure, like this is not uh, a dinochyrid of any kind by- Yeah, we compare it in the paper. We compare the oh, yeah? feet of those two to each other in the paper. Okay, yeah. right on, that's so cool. And so um, with your present career in, it's in Utah, and you're no longer in the early Cretaceous, you're in the late Jurassic. Do you have much time for ornithomimosaurs there anymore? Or does that translate into like Kimmeridgian fauna when you get into the late Jurassic? Or Yeah, we don't have any ornithomimus no. or ornithomimosaurs in the, in the late Jurassic. Some, some early Cretaceous rocks out there. Um, and it was it, I was looking at something on the website. Is there like a Betasaurus was one of the early Cretaceous specimens you got yeah. there? Okay. So a Betasaurus is the one dinosaur that's been found from Dinosaur National Monument in the early Cretaceous rocks we have here called the Cedar Mountain Formation. And I'm working on an ornithomimid from the Cedar Mountain Formation closer to Moab called Ned Colbertia that's probably um, geologically a little older than Abetosaurus is. But Abetosaurus is a really cool long-necked you know, plant-eating sauropod dinosaur that lived in Dinosaur National Monument that's only ever been found here and they actually discovered four skulls for that specimen, for, the, for that species. And uh, I almost had a chance to go to Utah one time to do like an interview, and uh, the boss wasn't going to spring for the flight. But uh, Dinosaur National Monument is, is is very recognizable, especially because of um, a lot of terrific documentaries from the 90s and things like that. Um, because, I don't know, you can probably describe it far better than that. I describe it as like if you were to butter some toast and then drop it on the floor at, uh, at the barber shop, and then look at it, all that hair that was sticking onto the toast would be like dinosaur bones. <laughs> and then you guys just have like the, all these skeletons just kind of poking out of the rock and you built this incredible monument on top. And it's just awesome looking anyhow. I yeah, so Dinosaur National Monument, the core of it, what it was originally established to preserve and protect in 1915 is actually a, um, there's a channel that was present, like a river channel that was present in the Morrison Times in the Kimmeridgian and so 150 million years ago, and all of these animals were living in the late Jurassic quite happily, but then a drought happens and they all die in this area. And over time, their bodies are either washed into that river channel as the waters kind of return and the drought ceases and are preserved in that channel sand that turns into what we call a channel sandstone in the Morrison Formation. And that is what is later uplifted and tilted and then eroded and exposed for paleontologists like Earl Douglas from the Carnegie Museum to discover. And then in, the park was designated in 1915. The site was found in 1909, and a building was built over it in 1958 wow. so that it could preserve and protect these fossils in place for people to be able to see. So when they come to Dinosaur National Monument, what they're seeing is rock with all of these dinosaur bones preserved in it, that had died in that drought 150 million years ago. And we've built a building around it and left the fossils in situ, we call it, in place in the rock 
so that people can see the fossils exactly as they would be found when we're digging them up as paleontologists. But we, instead of taking them out, we just left them in the rock for people to be able to see. Mm. So we have all the famous dinosaurs like Stegosaurus and Allosaurus and Patasaurus and Camarasaurus. So we have all the good ones. Yeah. And, uh, and even less famous ones too. Do you have things like mammals and turtles and like crabs and things like that as well? We do. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's the really cool thing about Dinosaur National Monument, too, is that we have all these little animals that are also living under the feet of the dinosaurs. So we have frogs and amphibians and early geckos and early mammal-like animals. And so we also preserve those kinds of fauna as well, you know, turtles and crocodiles and all sorts of cool critters. So Lots of little tiny things. Birds and things like that, they just aren't yet found in the Morrison. Um, would you expect to find things like that there? Is there any chance that there's that they might be found? You know, we know that they probably were living in this area. Other small um, animals like that have been found in other places, and they just haven't been found here in Dinosaur yet. Mm-hmm. And that might be preservational, preservationally biased. It may be um, a collection bias. It's hard to say. But, you know, maybe someday we'll find one. <laughs> I hope so. Outside the realm of possibilities. <laughs> so in the documentaries, uh, and I've got books where there's like artists' interpretations, there's uh, always a paleontologist uh, climbing over top of the the in-situ fossils and stuff like that. Is that still, do people still climb out on the rocks and, and, uh, and study the fossils right there? Yeah. So we don't have work ongoing on the quarry wall anymore where people are actually excavating the fossils. We have decided to leave those all in place for people to be able to see and enjoy. So the active excavation component is not still occurring, but there is still current research taking place. So we have researchers that come from all over the world to study fossils from Dinosaur National Monument, and some of them still go on the quarry wall. That's awesome. When you were, I guess... Before you had the opportunity to, to work out there, move out there, do you, was, this, uh, was this a place that was on your radar in terms of like, it was in all the books and documentaries I ever saw. Was this some place that was fairly noto- you know, familiar to you before you showed up? Oh, absolutely. I came here in high school um, oh, on yeah. a paleontology road trip with my mom and sister. And um, so I came here in high school and it was, you know, one of the main highlights of you know, things you have to see if you want to do paleontology. So I was very excited to come here and see this site. And then I I came several other times um, throughout college and working here. So, yeah, I think this site is kind of like a touchstone or a very special place for anybody who, you know, loves and appreciates fossils. Mm -hmm. Well, it makes a great visual when you're you're producing uh, dinosaur media. (laughs) Yeah, it is very, it is very visually captivating. So speaking of dinosaur media uh, and influential dinosaur uh, depictions in in, uh, the 90s and things like that, this is obviously a podcast about the novel Jurassic Park. Do you have uh, memories or impressions and things like that from from the novel? Yes. I read the novel when I was, I think I was about 13 when I read it for the first time. Mm -hmm. I've read it several times over the years. And I remember being so engrossed in it. And my friends used to tease me because I was always, you know, I read like Stephen King's The Stand and things like, you know, I was reading larger books at that age and my girlfriends would beg me to not bring my books to like <laughs> the swimming pool or to events because it wasn't cool. <laughs> and so um, I remember being somewhat tortured by my peers for, you know, making fun of me for being into these big novels. But I do 
remember reading Jurassic Park because it just sucked me in. And I remember, like, having it in front of the sink while my mom made me wash dishes, and I just couldn't put it down, so I propped it up in front of the sink so I could read it while I was washing dishes. Mm -hmm. And I remember laying in the back of my parents' station wagon trying to finish the book before we went in to see the movie. Okay, yeah, yeah. I remember uh, doing the same thing. I I couldn't wait for the movie, and so I got my hands on the book, and makes all the difference. It's so fascinating. It's, really, the suspense, the way he prolongs and doesn't ever... You never know what's going to happen next. It really keeps you going, that's for sure. Yeah, and you know, the book, I think, came to me before I even realized that there was going to be a movie. I was growing up in Arkansas and wasn't really paying attention to to that much pop culture at that time, so I wasn't... I don't think I was even really aware that the movie was coming. I didn't read the book super duper fast the first time. I think um, it took me a while to get through it. But I remember in the process of reading it, finding out that there was a movie coming out and getting really excited about that. And I think it was also the first time that I remember reading a book that I then very shortly after read reading the book saw the movie. Mm-hmm. So that happened later in life too. I finally read like Lord of the Rings right before I saw those movies. And, and so I was able to kind of stack those together and compare and contrast later on. But I think that was my first experience with reading a book and then immediately going and seeing the movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is an exciting time. I've been doing this podcast just long enough that we go chapter by chapter. We finally made it to the chapter. It's called The Main Road. And uh, this is, of course, when the Tyrannosaurus decides to exit the paddock and uh, attack the Land Cruisers, uh, which the film adapts very, very well. I think it's a very visually compelling scene, and I think that's one of those things that is very memorable in, in cinematic history, the mm-hmm. way that Spielberg pulled that off with you know the help of all the effects companies and everything. Because it was a, really one of the first times that, and when you're watching Jurassic Park and you see the Brachiosaurus rearing up, those are our first real introductions to really convincing dinosaur animatronics and, and, and you know, graphics. Mm-hmm. Really made them seem to just jump off the screen and, and come alive. And I feel like they, they did a good job in that part of the book bringing that part to life. Yeah, and it's uh, an incredible chapter. It's an incredible scene in the film. I imagine that that would be the pitch. <laughs> a Tyrannosaur eats two cars. And he's like, okay, make the movie. That sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely worked, and it was, it was good visuals. Yeah, absolutely. So you are a living, breathing paleontologist, so that must mean that one of your favorite dinosaurs has to be Stegosaurus. That's got to be right, right? Oh, I love Stegosaurus. It's adorable. It's the best one. So <laughs> why do you think they were so great? It's a great fossil. Is, is it? It is. It's I should know that. It is, and uh, and and you've got some on dis- the, so they're in the walls still at the quarry. Yeah, we actually have quite a few stegosaur specimens on the walls that people can see when they come to visit, especially like all the stegosaur plates that people think of when they think of stegosaurus. Yeah. One of our favorite, one of my favorite fossils that's been found on the wall is that we actually have a baby stegosaurus, which mm. is so cute, and so it's about the size of a smaller dog you know it's not like i have a labrador retriever and it's a little smaller than she is how do you have is it an articulated skeleton so what we have are like the hind legs the front legs some ribs and but that's really all that's preserved a few um you know a few of the the ribs and things like that 
Okay. But we've done, we didn't have plates preserved for it or, you know, really any skull material or anything like that. And it was, one, it still is one of the best preserved juvenile stegosaurs that's ever been found anywhere. There's a, you know, we have a mount of it on display at the quarry exhibit hall that you can see when you come to visit, but there's also, you know, they've put this on display at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, even. Um, that's based on our material at Dinosaur. And even the Denver Museum, their Stegosaurus mount has a whole little little herd or flock of baby Stegosaurus running underneath the mom and, you know, trying to get away from an Allosaurus, of course. And they, so the folks over in Denver had had the chance to um, work at a site, I believe, and they did find some juvenile Stegosaurus plates at their location. So we do know that a little Stegosaurus would have also had adorable little plates on its back. So they, you know, if you saw a baby Stegosaurus, you would know, hey, this is a Stegosaurus. That's awesome. I've never heard of Stegosaurus juveniles. That's the coolest thing. They're so cute. Yeah, they're really cool. All right, all right, all right. I'll book my ticket. I'm coming. Um, <laughs> so I find them awesome because they're so strange in almost every way from tip to tip. They are the most unusual animals I think that there are. <laughs> we could go back and forth, like, taking turns over what's the craziest thing about them. But I, just to start with, like, that, that their hips are as about as tall as an elephant, but that its front end was, like, basically skimming the ground is so bizarre that you would have something with, that stood that high, but but its head was so low to the ground. It's yeah, just it so strange. Does, it definitely slopes forward towards its head. And so its arms are shorter than its back legs. Yeah. And so it, running was probably like a non, non-consideration. non They wouldn't do that almost at all, could you? Well, I think it could run if it needed to or, you know, trot along. If, you know, it's not going very fast. No. But I'm sure it could move if it needed to. Jeez. And they were so big. Um, big. But they also, you know, could, like, tell people to bug off, you know, scratching yeah. their tail around that has these four beautiful spikes on the end of it. And then it has all those crazy plates on its back, which also looked kind of crazy to other animals i'm sure and they probably were wondering well, like mm-hmm. how do you even reach in here and get a bite of this critter i wonder if there's like in terms of like the visual signaling of just like if you were one of these theropods that could see a fairly good distance and you were fairly tall and you could look out over the the plains or whatever that you would see that and say that nah, there's no point in going over there <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe maybe it was desperate theropods who would go after a stegosaur because getting big didn't slow it down. When I looked at um, uh, at ornithischians in the in the Jurassic, the, really the only big ones are the stegosaurs. The rest of them are kind of dinky, and um, but stegosaurs and they, and they aren't the, the other ones aren't necessarily as plated or armored or anything like that. Like the the stegosaurs are the 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 best ornithischians of the Jurassic, and and nothing really comes close to what they were. I think there was what Camptosaurus was kind of big too, but. Big, but then you get smaller ones like Dryosaurus, um, which is a smaller, uh, you know, smaller ornithischian, but still, you know, very cute. So the theropods are keeping the ornithischians uh, in check, except the stegosaurs. It looks like they they were able to get big and and uh, hold their own. Yeah, they kind of had a little niche there, and it's interesting to think about. Well, what what were they doing differently than like the sauropods as far as eating? What were they eating differently? And when you look at their mouths, their mouths are constructed differently, and their teeth are shaped differently. So they're probably feeding on different types of vegetation. But it is impressive that they got as large as they got. You know, I never thought of it before. Is there any chance that 
the the plates and the spikes and stuff like that. We always envisioned them fighting off an Allosaurus. Is there any chance that it was to to fend off or take space away from the sauropods, like to hold their ground? Well, maybe, but I don't, you know I I don't think that they were probably battling or anything like that. You know, they may have gotten in each other's way, like modern day you yeah. know plant eaters might do. But I think that there was probably lots of other ways that they could communicate. Hey, give me my space. <laughs> so I don't think that they were probably like trying to push out sauropods or anything like that. So one of the low key things that um, shows up in some mounts and displays of the stegosaur that you don't always see is this um, chainmail of osteoderms that go around its neck. Yeah, those don't always get preserved very well because they're you know they're smaller, they're embedded in the skin, and so they have a tendency to float away when an animal is getting you know after it's died or being fossilized. Um, especially if there's water influence, those are the kind of things that get winnowed away and they mm-hmm. wash away a little more quickly. But yeah, they do have these, in, you know, really interesting osteoderms around their neck that probably, you know, protected their neck region to some degree. Mm-hmm. And it, t- it obviously must indicate if you put protections like ceratopsians have the frill on their neck, uh-huh. and uh, the stegosaurs have these these things on their neck, and you'll see the sauropods. Some of them grow large spines on their neck. That obviously biting the neck is a, a strategic place to to bite if uh, if you're trying to take down a big animal. And I wonder, like obviously this was uh, this must show and be an indication of um, of behavior of the theropods as well at the time. Sure. Well, I mean, we still see it happening today. You see you know, lions and, and other, especially big cats taking down, you know, full-on, you know, horned ungulates, you know, with their mouth where they'll just tackle them and grab them by the neck and, and choke them to death, which mm-hmm. is really kind of impressive and kind of crazy. And at least Allosaurus still kind of has the use of its arms. They're handy. They can actually, you know, sort of grasp at things. They're not mm-hmm. with appendages that the later Cretaceous guys end up with. And they have these giant feet, too, that they can, you know, stand on things with and hold things down while they're attacking with their mouth. Or, they, you know, they have really crazy claws on their hands as well. Mm-hmm. They're using their hands and their mouth to, you know, predate if that's what they're doing. And I wonder, too, like with the plates and the spikes on it, like I was just watching, a, uh, listening to a podcast and they were talking about... Uh, there was a wound on one of the, it was either the pelvis or the ischium, but there was like a, a hole in, in, in the pubis that matched the spike of a tail. And I thought, oh, that's that's pretty tough to get hit between the legs with a stegosaurus thagomizer. And I, I <laughs> obviously they're hitting things with their tails as well. And, and uh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. I think they're hitting things with their tails. I don't think they would have evolved those spikes on the, on the end of their tail if they weren't using them. Both for you know, attention, like, hey, stay away from my back end back here, and, and, you know, maybe distracting even from the front end of the animal, but they were probably also used for, you know, defense. So, do you think it would be like a whip, or um, like a lashing, or do you think they were like a scorpion? How do you suppose they were... were... I think they were just moving their tails, you know, side to side. Yeah. Yeah. They'd probably be big and heavy enough that it would, even without the spikes... Imagine being like hit by a truck when you get hit by one of these things. I'm sure it would hurt. Yeah, I mean, especially because you know, it's like shin high on an allosaur, that's not going to feel very good. You know, they could maybe, you know, some of the bigger stegosaurs could maybe have even nailed them in the thigh, and that's not going to feel good. And there's no doctors, there's no dinosaur doctors, and we mm-hmm. do see a lot of injuries on various, you know, theropods and allosaurs. Like look at Big Al and all the injuries on Big Al. Um, 
And even on tracks, we see dinosaur tracks that have injuries indicated in the tracks where maybe their their stride length isn't the same. Maybe one foot is limping a little bit more than the other. Um, so maybe they're, they've had a foot injury or something like that. And mm-hmm. foot injuries are definitely something we see, you know, I wouldn't say commonly, but we do see in the fossil record. Mm-hmm. There's nobody around to pull out those splinters and they're <laughs> shoot. And that'd slow you down, that's for sure. Well, I tell you, the the stegosaur in Jurassic Park gets just kind of labeled as dumb, and it kind of just waddles around like a pig, and it's a little a little disappointing that stegosaur doesn't get to get to be exciting. And uh, yeah, I, you know, I love the visuals of the baby triceratops that they have, or the young triceratops that they have in mm-hmm. the chapter and in the in the book in general. I always love that idea of a young triceratops, but I could see equally as adorable a young stegosaur. For sure. So I had questions about the Morrison Formation. All right. So the big question, like, so the Morrison Formation, from what I look at here, you know, the rock formation spans across, it says 13 states, was accumulating sediment for almost 10 million years. It spans for over different eons with the, with the Mesozoic period. It's 200 meters thick in some places. It's a huge chunk of rock, and it's just filled with all kinds of dinosaurs. Um, how does something like that happen? How does this much sediment for that long, where does, where is it coming from and how does it get deposited in this huge space? How does this happen? Yeah, it's just kind of a, a great time for deposition, which is wonderful for fossil preservation. So you've got all these, um, kind of meandering streams and rivers coming through what is now the Colorado Plateau area for the most part, um, that was just kind of a basin where these you know, sediments are, are being deposited and trapped, and, you know, it's just kind of a perfect situation for both, you know, water is moving, animals are living here, there's abundant vegetation for them to eat, that kind of myth that it's this dry, deserty place probably isn't accurate at all, um, and there probably was a lot of, you know, food for these animals to eat, they're happy, they're living along these, you know, areas with stream influence, and then they're dying in these areas too, which is great for <laughs> preservation when you have dead animals dying in areas with lots of sedimentation rate, you know, being high to be able to cover up and preserve those animals. Mm-hmm. I guess trying to look at it from um, from a modern perspective, would would it somehow resemble something like maybe the Hudson Bay in terms of like it's a low area with, a, with, with water at it and then a lot of just things feeding into that area and then theoretically inside the that space would be where all this sediment is being deposited? Would it have to be something like that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not like a swampy area. It's a well-drained, you know, there's water moving through it. So there would be a lot of vegetation in the area, probably, especially localized around those water sources. A lot of people have compared it to, like, the Serengeti or these, you know, these big, more open plains. Mm-hmm. Um, so it maybe looks like something like that as well. That's interesting. But I don't think it's as dry as most people haven't interpreted it in the past. And we're starting to see that by looking, you know, a lot of people always kind of overlook the petrified wood that we might find, or maybe aren't looking for plant fossils or just, you know, kind of discarding plant fossils. Mm-hmm. A lot of Morrison Formation quarries preserve a lot of plant fragments in them. Uh, other paleontologists are working at plant sites right now where there are, you know, really good leaves and conifers and things like that being found 
from the Morrison Formation, and this shows us exactly what these herbivores would have been eating. And then we're finding, you know, giant preserved logs. The, the problem with petrified wood is a lot of people have collected it over the years. Okay. If you remove something from an environment, we're losing information about that environment. So a lot of people think petrified wood is just cool, and they collect it. But petrified wood can tell us a lot about an environment, what those animals are eating, what the ecosystem is able to sustain. And so by having that collection bias of people having been removing petrified wood for decades, we aren't always seeing those represented in the fossil records like what we would hope to see. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating so when stuff. we go into these areas that aren't, as heavily collected, we just start to see more of that material. So are there places in, in, in and around that area that are likely going to be fossiliferous that uh, you're just waiting for for a landslide or something like that? Like, Have you got your eyes on a spot that, you, you know, is bound to be good? Uh, well, I mean, there's areas that are covered up with sand that I wish sometimes, especially in Dinosaur National Monument, that I wish sometimes the sand dune would just blow away. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's not going to happen. Um Erosion rates here are pretty good just because we have a very high tilt on the rocks in this area. So all the rocks that used to be flat-lying have all been kind of tilted up on end just due to mountain building in our area. So that can both increase erosion rates, which expose fossils more frequently, but at the same time, too, it can make them very difficult to excavate because then instead of working in a horizontal you know, area, you're kind of standing up on end to excavate fossils, so it can be both difficult, but also interesting as far as erosion goes. That's really cool. So one of the things that uh, guests tell me often is that uh, we don't actually talk about the book all that much when we get a chance. Was there uh, were there other parts of, of the the novel that you recall really standing out as being you know favorite moments or or things that were adapted into the film that you thought were you know personal favorites of yours? Oh man, I'd have to think back. I mean, the book, of course, and, and books in general are always able to tell a more rich and depth story with a lot more visuals than what you're able to usually financially capture on on screen. Mm-hmm. Even with a blockbuster. Um, And sometimes that's at the benefit of the story, too, because you get lost in the visuals. Um, You know, I guess at the end of the book, where they talk about the dinosaurs burrowing, I thought that was really innovative at the time and really interesting and something that now we've actually found in the fossil record. So that was kind of an example of almost like the book being a little ahead of its time. Um, even though those behaviors had been interpreted and mentioned before, there I don't think we had really had a whole lot of direct evidence. Mm-hmm. So that's something that we've started to get more direct evidence of, of some burrowing dinosaurs or dinosaurs are taking advantage of, of holes in the ground to, to live in. So that's something that kind of I remember sticking out in the book um, thinking, oh, that's really interesting. And then now, you know, the fossil record kind of catching up with a little bit more so I guess that's something that stuck out in my mind from the book. Mm-hmm. Are the burrowing species, are those things that are being found in in, uh, in North America? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like in, I believe it's Idaho or Montana with a Rictodromia. Right. Um, is one that they believe they found the burrows for and that they're seeing um, burrowing structures for these animals to live in. Um, so that behavior is now being... You know, when they're excavating fossils, they're paying more attention to maybe the sediment around them. Is the sediment that the animals are buried in different from the sediment that maybe you see 
you know, a little further away from the animal. Mm-hmm. Um, so people are maybe now being a little more careful or paying more attention to what they're preparing off when they're cleaning the fossils. Because sometimes people aren't paying attention to the context that the fossil's in or the rock that it's in beyond saying, oh, it's in a sandstone or it's in a mudstone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just reading um, reading up on one of the papers. It was doing like a kind of like a survey of uh, late Triassic theropods from Europe. And the examples they had of Procompsognathus, they said, well, it came in a, three different pieces, but they were sold to the paleontologists from a quarry manager. And so he said they came all together, but they don't, I mean, they could never know. And so they got these three pieces and they don't know if one of them is actually even part of the, the actual specimen or not. So they're reluctant to say whether or not it is also <laughs> a referred specimen or not. So, yeah, it's tricky when you don't get to, you don't get to verify it for yourself and it's kind of like lost to history, right? Yeah, and that's why I think that fossil excavation just needs to be done very carefully and very thoughtfully. I'm not saying that people that, you know, aren't academics aren't being thoughtful or careful in their collection of fossils. I think they certainly are. But sometimes there's a lot more that can be seen when you bring in a greater group of people working together to study something than just solitary workers. This is stuff that isn't noticed until later, maybe when the specimens are already in a museum and they go back and they reevaluate photos from the field and things like that. So, you know, new discoveries don't just take place in the field. Sometimes they take place in our museum collection. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And you find a specimen that's been languishing for 50 years in storage. <laughs> yeah, and that's becoming more and more and more. I mean, there's several paleontologists who have done almost all of their career redescribing fossils that have been found in museum collections and mm-hmm. that they don't really do field work. And that's okay. There's a lot of different ways to do paleontology. It's not just people in academia out in the summer wearing their fedoras and you know, <laughs> digging up fossils with bayonets. There's a lot of different ways things can be done. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose your field notes would have to be—they wouldn't have to be as strict when you're uh, when you're doing it out of a collection. Well, no, I think they do have to be. You you also have to keep notes on a lot of things you're saying because there's the the history of the way the fossil was collected that you're reading up on. Oh yeah. Uh, the way it was prepared. So any notes that the lab technicians took can be very important in the description of a specimen, too. And then studying them in the museum collection, you do end up taking a lot of notes. So I think it can be, it can go both ways. Teaching is essential regardless of what stage you're in. Is, so when you're training to be a paleontologist, is, is all of this note-taking and, and uh, documentation, is that strongly emphasized? In some programs, it is really strongly emphasized, and some, it's something you pick up from your peers and from just doing the work. I've seen it greatly vary. I have friends who take the most amazing, meticulous notes. My my husband's also a paleontologist, and he takes the most meticulous notes. And he can remember things, too. He can remember where he was in, like, you know, 2002, you know, almost to the day, because he's taken really good detailed notes and can flip back and look at those. Um, and then I've seen people in the field who rely on technology a lot, and not that that's bad. They may use like a GPS or a tablet or something to type their notes into, and they may be more organized in that fashion, or they may pop open the laptop at the end of the day and sit down and write down everything that's in their head. Mm-hmm. Just carry a field book. Um, it greatly it greatly varies. I suppose in terms of uh, that whole world of academia where somebody else is going to come and look at your notes and, and uh, you know, when they're corroborating their own, their own research, that's so important. Yeah, 
why field notes are so important and making sure that those are archived and whether you're in a museum or, you know, whether you're working in academia or whether you're, you know, working in consulting or in education. There's so many different ways that you can be a paleontologist and making sure that we're documenting what we do for future people to be able to refer back to and that those notes are accessible is so important because it doesn't do us any good if we have all the field notes from everybody up to, say, 1990, but in the 2000s, the paleontologist just takes their notes home with them at the end of the day and doesn't <laughs> leave copies. That's not helpful to people who are coming up later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of information does nobody any good. We have to share information in order for science to move forward. Yeah, definitely. So when um, when you're working on uh, publishing about the Arkansas the Arkansas, sorry, you obviously must have had to refer back to other like ornithomimosaur papers and research. Yeah. Um, and and looking at all the notes and stuff like that. Yeah, so, at the time there wasn't a lot. When I was yeah. an undergrad, there hadn't been a whole lot published on ornithomimids, and unfortunately, the work that my predecessor, Dr. Quinn, had done. All we really had to go off of was an abstract that he had submitted to the Geological Society of America meeting one year. And his notes after he passed away weren't preserved in a way for where we could ever find them. We were never able to find any of his his notes. And so that happens sometimes when people pass away suddenly. If the family isn't, you know, knowing that they need to preserve these types of records, they maybe don't get saved or if someone in the department doesn't realize the significance of these things, they may not get saved. And so in that instance, I didn't have access to records from Hmm. what had been done in the past beyond, you know, popular articles in the press and that one abstract. Having looked at, I guess, what you were able to find about ornithomimosaurs, how did Spielberg's interpretation of the the Gallimimus stack up to, to what you know about them today? Well, I mean, when we look at what Spielberg did what we versus what we know today, we know a lot more, but, you know, when he made that movie, there wasn't as much information available as what there is today. We know now that many of these ornithomimosaurs probably had feathers mm-hmm. or, or feather-like structures. Um, we know the articulation of the hands, of course, is a little different. That's something everybody always harps on with, with Jurassic Park or the bunny hands. And so <laughs> It's hard to imagine them just looking like ostriches, or maybe it's too easy. I'm not sure. One or the other. I always explain them as ostriches that want to give you a big hug. Yeah. <laughs> it, whoever... They nice long arms, and they could reach out and just give you a nice, comfortable hug, and they you know, it'd really be nice to hug. That paper that described the, the articulation of the forearms on theropods uh, really put a line in the sand where it dates artwork now. <laughs> it really does, yeah. And well, but you still see it in a lot of artwork today for, for people that are just going off Jurassic Park or Jurassic mm-hmm. World for reference, that they aren't always doing the, the wrist structure correctly. But, you know, and this is also a lot of the way people learn anatomy is by starting to draw and starting to do art and then observing modern animals and looking at the way bones go together. So I don't feel like we can dump too hard on people that draw things the wrong way because maybe that helps them learn how to do it the right way. Mm-hmm. You know, people are really critical when it comes to art in general. And I think paleo art can be 
one of the most cutthroat professions. People right? are, are not kind when it comes to both paleo artists and doing paleo art. People are overly critical sometimes, I think, and they forget that there's a lot of interpretation left to be done and that, you know, in 10 years we're going to look back at things and be like, oh, this thing that we used to think was super accurate is probably, you know, really wrong now. But that's okay because being wrong is how we learn to be right later. Mm-hmm. We're constantly correcting ourselves, and that's a great thing. It's okay to be wrong. So in the early Cretaceous was Arkansas, the home of Arkansas, was that in the Laramidia section or was that in the Appalachia section? You know, it hadn't, when Arkansas was around, it probably hadn't completely split apart yet. Okay. But it was definitely more on the coastal side of what becomes Appalachia. All right. And it's pronounced Appalachia, not Appalachia, or I've heard it so many different ways. Cause... Depends on what state you're in. What's that? It depends what state. <laughs> You, you make that absolutely right. I always kind of read it in, in French, but that's because I got too much Francophone in me. That's all right. I don't know how much more time you got. It's, uh, it's probably your lunch hour is over. Oh, yeah. No, I actually have a meeting that's going till 5 that starts here at 1, so I should probably get back to you. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time. I super appreciate it. Oh, no, thank you. I appreciate it. And I'm sorry for all the technical difficulties. <laughs> it's all right. No problem. Um, happy Halloween. Thank you. You as well. All right. Thanks very much. You too. Thank you. A big thank you to my special guest, Rebecca Hunt Foster, for joining the show. Thank you so much. She fit me in on her lunch hour. That was awesome. (laughs) Sorry for the technical difficulties. It still turned out awesome. All right. The text this week uh, begins with the fourth iteration and then segues into our chapter, The Main Road. Uh, The fourth iteration, quote, inevitably underlying instabilities begin to appear. We're told on page 179. And in a synopsis of the chapter... Uh, Big Rex knocks down the fences in the storm and ominously directs her terrifying attention upon everyone in the land cruisers. Ed Regis wets his pants and runs away, but everyone else is left in the Tyrannosaurus' devastating path. Lex's screams are cut off by the lowering of the Tyrannosaurus' head. Malcolm is flung like a ragdoll. Tim is trapped in the land cruiser, which the Tyrannosaur throws into the top of a tree. And Grant has a moment of discovery, realizing that if he remains absolutely still, the Tyrannosaur can't see him. But then it kicks at him, and he blacks out upon hitting the ground characters. Tim Murphy. Tim's wearing the night vision goggles, which feel heavy, we're told on page 181. They adjust by a knob by his ear, where everything appears as phosphorescent electric green and black. Think of that strange code in the Matrix. He's in the front Land Cruiser, and through these goggles can see Doctors Grant and Malcolm in the Land Cruiser behind them. It seems relevant to mention Tim must be in the rear of the Land Cruiser, looking out the rear window into the second car at Malcolm and Grant. This puts Regis and Lex in the front seats. Tim can tell by the slope of the hill that they are someplace near the Tyrannosaur paddock, and Tim thinks it'd be thrilling to see the Tyrannosaur in the night vision goggles. The darkness and drumming rain lulled Tim into feeling sleepy on page 182, but he becomes alert after a sudden thump that shakes the ground and a dark shape crossing the road swiftly between the two cars. Tim uses the night vision goggles and serves as Grant's visual proxy to see what is out there. Tim's sensitive about scaring his sister, which is sweet, when trying to relate to Grant what he sees, but trying not to overdramatize that there is a T-Rex standing at the gate. He watches it, watching them. Is this thrilling, Tim? In the goggles, the eyes glow a bright green, we're told on 184, and Tim feels a chill, not a thrill. And then he saw that its forearm gripped the electric fence. Tim asks his sister to close the car door after Regis runs away because he can't reach from the back seat. Tim tries to refocus and answer Grant's question when he realizes that the Rex can grip the fence, meaning the power is out. 
We told him 185. He continues to implore Lex to close the car door to little effect, but it's useless. He'll have to climb out and shut it for her. But as he decides this, the Tyrannosaur smashes down the cyclone fencing. He closes the door and slams it shut. The sound is lost in the thunderclap, so the Tyrannosaur may not have heard it, luckily. He commands Lex to lock, lock the doors, sit in the middle, and shut up! When the Rex crashes its head down on the Land Cruiser's hood, it knocks Tim flat against the seat and knocks the goggles from his head. He's injured, finding blood in his mouth on 187. He gets up, looking to see that his sister is okay. He's in contact with Grant over the radio, but his heart pounds in his chest. Upon Lex groaning, Tim is attentive and tries to help, but when the roof is dented down by the Rex, it must strike him in the head because he then feels a sharp pain in his head, and he tumbles to the floor onto the transmission hump. He finds himself beside Lex on the floor and is shocked to see her covered in blood. Then the Rex smashes out the windshield, stares directly at him as he feels a chill before the jaws rush at him before hitting metal. He smells its stinky breath, feels the tongue's saliva as a hot lather. Hears a deafening roar inside the car, but the head pulls away abruptly. Tim begins to realize the Rex can't get to him inside the car. She's too big. Then the Rex kicks the car, and he knocks his head concussively hard. It lifts and shakes the car, making him dizzy, creating a stabbing pain in his side, and then everything swings crazily, and he and the Land Cruiser fall, his stomach heaving, and the world goes black. Dr. Alan Grant. He checks in on Tim and Lex in the front vehicle and warns them to stay in the car. Upon Malcolm's inquiries, Grant supposes that they've been waiting for about four or five minutes and that the power outage may be from a short circuit in the rain, according to, on page 182. Understandably, when the dark shape with ground-shaking size darts between the Land Cruisers, he's distressed. Grant knows Tim's got the night vision goggles and asks for help as a visual proxy to see what is out there. As Grant refers to Tim for details about the Tyrannosaurus, he's sensitive to ask in a way that may not further disturb Lex. Grant can tell that something's going on in the front car and tries to keep in contact with Tim. He's astonished to hear that Regis ran away. He asks the kids to stay in the car, stay down, be quiet, and don't move. He doesn't think the Rex can, quote, open the car. Don't arouse its attention any more than necessary. As the Rex circles the Land Cruisers, Malcolm and Grant appear tense. Watching the carnage, all Grant can do is radio the first car and see if they're all right. At this time, through the dark and the storm, Grant and Malcolm cannot see clearly what's happening, and so when the other Land Cruiser disappears from view, they're horrified on page 188. Grant blinks his eyes as the lightning faded. Again, Grant senses the world around him. He's recalibrating his vision. He can't believe the car is gone. Surely the Tyrannosaur was just blocking their view, but no, the car was gone. And then he hears Lex screaming and watches as the Rex is sniffing or eating off the ground. They can't tell which. It feels to them like that was Lex and that she has been eaten. Believing that they have just witnessed an eight-year-old child get eaten, Grant feels seeping fatigue overtake him, to be read that they're losing hope. Their demise is perhaps inevitable. And then the Tyrannosaur takes dreaded, slow, ominous strides towards him. Grant's heart pounds, and he has no idea what to do. When Malcolm flees, he watches in horror as the Tyrannosaur easily overtakes him, though Grant is unsure what happened. Then spontaneously, Grant is outside, hoping to flee, but is caught by the Tyrannosaur and he freezes on page 190. He's completely exposed, standing outside the open door of the Land Cruiser. He simply refuses to move. She's terrifyingly loud when she roars, and he shakes with cold and fright. His trembling hands are pressed against the car door to steady them. As the Rex stalks him, he's dizzy with fear. His heart pounds inside his chest. He can smell the rotten flesh in its mouth, the Swedish blood smell, the sickening stench of the carnivore. Still, its flaring nostrils and stinking hot breath assault Grant as he battles confusion and terror. He bites his lip, squeezes his fists, anything to stay still before the Tyrannosaur for survival. He understands she can't see him, 
he's invisible if he remains motionless. And just like Regis's publicist brain that operates unconsciously, Grant's academic mind finds an explanation for why the Tyrannosaur couldn't see him. But he's kicked into oblivion, interrupting our comprehension too. The Tyrannosaur kicks Grant probably the length of a football field, and the last thing he sees is the ground rushing up at him as he lands face first. At Regis, Regis was initially holding the receiver for the radio, but Tim takes it away to speak with Grant on page 181. Regis mutters that, of course, he'll stay in the car in the middle of a tropical storm. Hell of a rain, is all he has to say, making conversation like boring people might, chatting about the weather on page 182. He does make an effort to calm Lex down in the storm, calling her sweetie, and I don't read that as anything but sincere. Then Regis reminds us that the cars are electric and cannot move because the cables because, because of the cables in the road like a trolley. Upon the dark shape thumping between the cars, Regis asks Tim if it looked like the Tyrannosaur, but Tim is unsure on 183. And as Lex begins to cry with the lightning, Regis calls her honey, trying to calm her down again, sincerely. When the Rex grips the electric fence to no effect, Regis swears. Perhaps he too, even without the night vision goggles, can see the Tyrannosaur pretty well. In the back of Regis's, quote, publicist brain, he's thinking up gruesome headlines of the impending Tyrannosaur attack as absolute terror begins to overwhelm him on 184. His knees shake uncontrollably because he knows what a a dinosaur attack looks like. Recall chapter 2, The Bite of the Raptor. He knows what happens to people, seen the mangled bodies, and those were just raptors. This was the T-Rex. The Rex roars and Regis pisses his pants, becoming both embarrassed and terrified. His hands begin to tremble against the front dash of the Land Cruiser. He's compelled to do something, but what? That something was get out of the Land Cruiser and run in the opposite direction of the Tyrannosaur, disappearing into the woods. He leaves the car door wide open. Dr. Ian Malcolm. Malcolm begins to wonder, quote, how long they have been, quote, sitting there, so the power must be out for a little while, and the tension and isolation must be weighing on everyone. If the power outage was caused by a short circuit by the rain, Malcolm wonders why it went out before the storm really started. As well, when the dark shape with ground-shaking size darts between the Land Cruisers, he's distressed too. Malcolm is alarmed to hear that the fence isn't electrified on 185. As the Rex circles the Land Cruisers, Malcolm and Grant appear tense on 186. All this time, through the dark and the storm, Grant and Malcolm cannot clearly see what's happening. And so when the other Land Cruiser disappears from view, they're horrified, we're told on 188. Malcolm gasps, Jesus, what happened? They can't figure out what happened to the other car. He can hear Lex screaming, and they can faintly make out the Rex ducking down and ending her screaming. It feels to them like Lex has been eaten. As the Rex turns its attention to the second Land Cruiser, Malcolm can't help but admit, you know, uh, at times like this, one feels, well, perhaps extinct animals should be left extinct. Don't, Don't you have that feeling now? He refers to the dinosaur expert Dr. Grant for some tips on what to do, and Grant gives him nothing, so he improvises his own plan. He makes a run for it, too. With the dip of the Tyrannosaur's head, Malcolm is tossed, quote, like a small doll on page 190. That's the end of him. Lex Murphy. Deductively, though not expressly stated, Lex must be sitting in the front seat of the Land Cruiser with Regis. Lex reveals that she's always been afraid of lightning on 182 and squeezes her mitt tight for comfort. Lex returns to whining about being hungry, and she certainly must be. Then lightning flashes and the thunder proves the storm is almost directly on top of them. She begins to cry and continues to cry and apparently snuffles too. Lex is crying, but when Regis spots the Tyrannosaur and starts swearing, she stops crying and wags her finger at him, castigating him for using bad language on 184. But Regis runs away, and her terror escalates, and she screams, He left us! You remember that, right? She screams that a lot. She becomes uselessly hysterical, and that's not her fault, but it sure ain't helping the situation. He left us! becomes a monotonous wail. 
I guess she hadn't spotted the Tyrannosaur until after it collapsed the cyclone fencing, after which she does see it and becomes silent, still and wide-eyed, at 185. She's transfixed with the animal, in complete terror. She looks for her brother to reassure her everything is going to be okay on 186. The Rex's first strike on their car hurts Lex pretty bad. She groans semi-consciously on 187, and unconscious on the floor of the car, shockingly, the whole side of her head is covered in blood. When the Rex kicks their car, turning it over, she to- she's tossed helplessly against the side window. The Rex shakes and throws the car, tossing her free into the mud. And Lex is heard screaming in the rain, and Malcolm and Grant watch as the Rex lowers its head, and her screaming ends. Tyrannosaurus. Tim wonders if the Tyrannosaurus were nocturnal, if they stayed out of the rain, and concludes to himself, nah, they're probably all weathered day or night. When a dark shape crosses swiftly between the two land cruisers after a ground-shaking thump, we don't know what it is and won't for a while, but it's the juvenile Tyrannosaurus. Spoiler alert. When Tim spots the Tyrannosaur, he sees its pebbly, grainy surface like the bark of a tree in a thick body on 183. It has a, quote, huge head. Recall it looked right at the land cruisers the first time around, before hiding away with the goat. So the Tyrannosaur knows that the Land Cruisers are there, and she's curious, if nothing else. It bellows after the lightning flash, and then everything's quiet again. Perhaps she's scared of the lightning, just like Lex. Maybe the storm has distressed her. (laughs) This is an element that makes for troublesome action in the Jurassic Park Evolution game when a storm rolls through, all the carnivores break out of their enclosures because their comfort ratings go down. (laughs) The Tyrannosaur is present at the beginning, but initially just stands on the other side of the fence, and it looks from one vehicle to the next, and then almost stares right at Tim. The Tyrannosaur waves its smaller, muscular forelimb in the air, and then grips the electric fence, realizing that now unelectrified, it poses no threat. In a flash of lightning, the Tyrannosaur's huge shape is silhouetted against the white, flaring sky, which is such a cool image. It uses its hind limb to crash down the cyclone fencing. It gets its claws caught in the grid of the flattened fence, but it pulls it free with a bounding step. Standing between the land cruisers, the Rex's body is so big it entirely blocks the view of them, its head far above the roofline. It circles the cars, then heads to the mud, where Regis and Tim had walked around and looked, looks at the car. It begins to jolt the car, crashing its head against the hood. And her arms make, quote, clawing movements in the air on page 187 while it's contemplating the Land Cruisers. Recall she did this when contemplating the Apatosaurs, according to Regis earlier, too. Perhaps this is what she does when she's contemplating a snack, kind of like stroking your chin while you browse through the refrigerator. She crashes her head over and over on the hood, then she bites the rear-mounted spare tire. She tugs it away easily with strength enough to lift the entire Land Cruiser. Her claws scrape over the metallic roof of the vehicle, continuing to explore this strange thing. It leans on the car, rocking it back and forth, causing the springs and metal to creak loudly. She dents the roof, and after another smash, the windshield explodes into the car, sending glass flying, and attempts to lunge through the car at Tim to eat him, sensing with its tongue inside the car. But then she pauses her attack, standing by the front fender, confused by something, blood dripping freely from her jaws. She kicks the Land Cruiser, perhaps out of frustration, and then lifts it by the window frame into the air, shaking it then crashes it down, then lifts it, tilting it crazily, shaking Lex free from the vehicle, then it tosses the Land Cruiser into the foliage below, with Tim in it. She's not emotionless. She gets frustrated and angry, as implied by her, quote, blazing eye on page 188. After inspecting Lex, who is thrown from the car, it turns its attention to the second Land Cruiser from which Malcolm flees, and she catches him easily, with a roar and a leap forward. She tosses Malcolm like a small doll, and then swings around to catch Grant standing in the rain as well. She can tell that Grant is in front of her, but cannot find him. She can't see unmoving objects, and so attempts to frighten him into moving by roaring a lot. 
She cocks her head and peers with first one eye, then the other, but doesn't attack. She splashes in the mud, lowers her head to peer in the window, snorts around, but cannot find Grand. She can't find him and is puzzled. And recall, this curious, contemplative, frustrated, and sometimes angered dinosaur is emotional and expressive. Being unable to frighten Grant into revealing himself, she kicks the Land Cruiser over, sending Grant flying through the air out of frustration. Localities. We have the Tyrannosaur Paddock. Down uh, by the downslope of the hill, the Land Cruisers are parked on. Tim can tell that they are, quote, someplace near outside the Tyrannosaur Paddock to start off this chapter. And while there's a fence to one side, which they look down into, on the other side is thick foliage, and Regis escapes into the woods in the opposite direction of the Tyrannosaur. Stylistic techniques. We have exclamations, like neat, on 181. This is Tim's internal thoughts on using the night vision goggles. Jesus, on 182, is what you yell when a juvenile tyrannosaur that you were expecting to be behind the electric fences instead darts by your car. And then Tim realized the tyrannosaur was holding on to the fence, on 185. The fence wasn't electrified anymore, on 185 again. Lex, close the door, with exclamation. And then there's uh, somebody yelling, Tim! So lots of emotions being expressed by the exclamation mark. Italics. Oh, no. No is italicized. 183. And again in italics, the greatest predator the world has ever known. The most fearsome attack in human history is italicized. 184. And these are the inner thoughts of Regis's publicist brain, and therefore to be read as his internal dialogues, his innermost thoughts. And they continue. Jesus. He had to do something. Italics. Something. So here we feel, uh, we can tell Regis is, is feeling some strong emotions. Lex, close the door! Is Tim trying to add emphasis to what he needs done? He what? When we find out that Regis left them and shut up! Again, people are just dying to be listened to in these moments. These are emotional pleas and they need to be heard. He was looking in the car, looking down at him. The other car was gone. These are all moments of realization to be read as moments of horror through italics. And Malcolm can't help but admit, you know, at times like these, one feels, well, perhaps extinct animals should be left extinct. And here Malcolm's sarcastic statement is further emphasized for perhaps a humorous sake in a useless, I told you so sort of way. What was going on? What had happened? Again in italics on page 190. These final questions asked in italics show how emotional and consequential the answers to these questions are. Has someone lost their life? Colon. And then Tim realized, colon, the Tyrannosaur was holding onto the fence. And then in another quote here, in another flash of lightning, he saw clearly, colon, the car was gone. Here, consequential truths are being introduced with clarity and impact with the colon. Rhetorical questions. He began to wonder if the Tyrannosaurs came out at night. Were they nocturnal animals? And was it possible the Tyrannosaur hadn't seen him? But how could that be? Uh, here, characters are working problems out for themselves. The rhetorical nature is that there are obviously no answers to be had. It c- implies their confusion and desperation. What was going on? What had happened? Uh, these only further illustrate the confusion and desperation that's being expressed in this chapter. Ellipses. 1-1000. Ellipses. 2-1000. Ellipses. On page 183. With the pause left intentionally, as we've all done, waiting for the thunder. And this is how we count how far away a storm is. Or how far away the lightning has struck. He scanned the leaves, ellipses, but it wasn't a tree, ellipses. Here the ellipses and pauses represent an unfinished thought that, in this case, Tim is still searching for answers. Read differently, he's confused and scared. The forelimb gripped the fence, ellipses, 
185. The ellipsis here is that the reader is to fill in the gap that's been left behind, and that is to come to the realization that the fence is no longer a security device protecting them against the Tyrannosaur. Timmy, ellipses. Lex is looking for reassurance from her brother. As the Rex stalks him, she, he's dizzy with fear. His heart pounds inside his chest. He can smell the rotten flesh in its mouth, the Swedish blood smell, the sickening stench of the carnivore, ellipses. This ellipsis both implies the impending doom that reckons at the doorstep as well as suggests that the list of things that horrify him about the Tyrannosaur is incomplete, and that he could list many other reasons to wet his pants. M-dash. He continued to look higher, sweeping the goggles upward, M-dash, on page 183. And here the M-dash is great because we're interrupted, but not by someone else talking, but by shock and horror. The dinosaur's body was so large, it was probably just blocking M-dash. And in a detached academic corner of his mind, he found an explanation for that, a reason why M-dash. And in these examples, the M-dash is an interruption by action instead of words, creating the impression of frantic pacing and sudden action. Tim couldn't answer because in the next instant, everything swung crazily, M-dash. He saw the trunks of the palm tree sliding downward past him, M-dash, moving sideways through the air, M-dash. He glimpsed the ground very far below, M-dash, the hot roar of the tyrannosaur, M-dash, the blazing eye, M-dash the tops of the palm trees, M-dash. We've seen before how the M-dash serves as a parenthesis in a sentence, as novels never use actual parentheses as a stylistic choice, I guess. The parenthetic structure says that this isn't necessarily sequential, but is to be read concurrently. So we're to read all these observations and descriptions that are separated by M-dashes as if they were a horrifying collage of all the things that Tim sees at once. That's, that's pretty excellent. Writing horror. As my guest Chris McDonald mentioned in episode 18, Welcome, what makes something a horror film is mostly in the media's portrayal of the people upon which the action is happening. If they are acting horrified, terrified, scared, and the film or novel has done well to help us empathize with that character, then a similar emotion is evoked in us, the readers or consumers of that medium. We empathize with the character, whether we like them or not. And in this chapter, we get Ed Regis absolutely horrified, pee in your pants horrified, and he's just looking at a Tyrannosaurus. Crichton has introduced us to Regis. He doesn't really compel us to like the character, but we can empathize with a guy who's been asked to perform duties outside of his job description for an overbearing boss, someone frustrated in their job, not being given the authorities or permissions to get the work he needs to do done, someone who's likely been seriously traumatized by dealing with monstrous attacking dinosaurs, that he's seen the insides of people outside of them, and all that stuff has an effect on him. So we can appreciate Regis's perspective and his frustrations and share in his horror. Being eaten by a dinosaur is literally, possibly, no way a person should die. (laughs) That said, any empathy we may have had for Regis melts away as Tim and Dr. Grant react very coolly and calmly to the Tyrannosaur. Obviously, these guys are the heroes, and Regis isn't about to face his fears and save anybody. And here's something that happens to evoke horror regularly throughout the novel. When a dinosaur is scary, or so close that it's becoming very dangerous, Crichton likes to tell you what its skin looks like that it's scaly or pebbly, etc. I guess this is to evoke the concept that the animal is so close, you can see these very specific details, which you otherwise wouldn't notice, like the serrated teeth during the raptor attack in episode 24, Control, even though you'd never notice the finer serrations on a tooth of an animal, no matter how close you were to it, right? There's an element where new realizations add greater terror, continuing to build suspense and making us wonder what will happen next. First, its defenses aren't electrified. Then it's realizing that the Tyrannosaur is looking into a, the car, etc., etc. 
And this, you know, segues, I guess, into uh, uh, a sister idea of, of tension building horror. Crichton is so great in this chapter. So many perspectives, so much tension and suspense, and he draws out the suspense, heightens the tension building through the entire chapter, sequentially taking characters off the board, as a tyrannosaur gives each character her undivided attention. How does Crichton build this? Rather than saying Malcolm ran away or he left the car, instead it's Malcolm twisted the handle, kicked it, opened the door, and ran. But even as he did, Grant could see that it was too late, the Tyrannosaur too close. These little moments that allow us to linger on the escape are moments that Malcolm doesn't have. It's too late. The Tyrannosaur is here. Literary techniques, we have some irony. When Regis mutters that, of course, he'll stay in the car in the middle of a tropical storm under his breath after Grant asked them to stay in the car, it's ironic because of everyone. Regis is going to be the first to flee from the cars. But we don't know that yet, which is why this is ironic and not dramatic irony. Tim thinks it'd be thrilling to see the Tyrannosaur in the night vision goggles, and how thrilling it'd be if the T-Rex looked at him, and if the eye glowed green with the goggles. Again, this is ironic. (laughs) Because all these things happen, and it turns out to be not thrilling. It's not what you expected. Uh, This would only be more ironic if Malcolm said, if anything happens to me, please use my belt as a tourniquet. (laughs) And note, tourniquet is trickier to spell than I thought it would be. Metaphors. Sheets of water stream down over the sides of the windows on 181. And this is a great metaphor. We can all picture this and recall this happening as water pours down as if out of buckets washing over your windows. It's a good metaphor, albeit not necessarily original. The rain falls, quote, shaking the leaves with hammering drops, providing not just a sound but more of an image of force. The leaves are being smacked strongly by the acute drops, and then the rain is, quote, pounding, which probably adds to the pathetic fallacy in giving human, human agency to the storm. And later, the rain is, quote, slashing on 185. Quote, jolting impact rocked the land cruiser and shattered the windshield as a spider in a spider web. 186. And I don't know if spiderweb is a distinct pattern or if it's actually a verb. Does something verb spiderweb? Like, maybe it does. Maybe that's a word I don't know about. The blazing eye on 188 is the enraged and furious eye of the Tyrannosaur. The Tyrannosaur got pissed off. Symbolism. I mentioned a few episodes ago that Lex's baseball glove is symbolic of her connection with her parents, and specifically her father, and a little bit about how Tim felt like his father was here on the island with them, embarrassing him in front of Dr. Grant just uh, by just the sight of his, this glove and his sister. In this scene, when Lex is scared, she squeezes her mitt tight for comfort at 182. And again, each kid has a very different relationship with their father. Here, Lex is clutching to her father for protection now that she's scared. Similes. Pebbled, grainy surface like the bark of a tree is a tyrannosaur skin. Which trees have bark that is pebbly or grainy? I don't know. Maybe this is what Tim is expecting to see, a tree, and the pebbly, grainy surface proves itself not to be a tree, and that's how the simile works? I don't know. His trousers flapping like flags on 184 is sort of awkward. Flags flap due to wind, not shaking, but I guess we can imagine them wobbling and folding like a a flag might in a gentle wind. If it were a strong wind, the flags would be whipped and stiff, but that's not what's being mentioned here. So for them to fold and wobble like a flag would require a gentle breeze, and that's kind of contrary to the tense and frantic emotions being presented here. I guess what I'm saying is, the simile isn't terrific. They should shake like laundry in the wind, or Crichton is an MD, right? He could have said that they shake like a seizure fit, or nervous tremor, or describe his heart rate, his his tight throat, the feeling tingling down his back, or, or something. But he doesn't. It shakes like a flag. Malcolm was tossed into the air like a small doll. Uh, We can all imagine a small doll being easily thrown through the air, just like Malcolm. But the Tyrannosaur wasn't sniffing like a dog. 
this is interesting. Malcolm sniffed like a dog earlier, if you recall. At that time, Crichton used it as if Malcolm were a bloodhound looking for clues in the control room to further his argument that Jurassic Park is unsafe. Here, the sniffing like a bloodhound looking for clues, but that's not what the Tyrannosaur is doing. It wasn't sniffing like a dog, Grant says. In other words, it's not searching for him by scent. That confuses Grant and, I guess, us too. <laughs> it wasn't sniffing like a dog. So dogs sniff to, to find things, and in this case, the Tyrannosaur was not sniffing to find Grant. Anthropomorphization. Quote, he had plenty of time to feel the world turn colder and watch the ground rush up to strike him in the face on 191. Gives the ground a bit more agency than ground usually has. The ground just sits there. It doesn't strike anybody. This is far more interesting and corporal than suggesting that he just fell on his face. And so we like this anthropomorphization of the ground. We like it when it strikes you in the face. <laughs> Let's talk about the, the movie adaptation of this scene in film compared to the novel. So there are some things that, the, uh, that both scenes have in common. In this, in the film, Tim plays with the night vision goggles and he thinks they're cool. Uh, as well, Gennaro is the film's proxy for Ed Regis in this scene. There's ground-shaking rumble as the Tyrannosaur approaches. That's the same. Tim does look outside to see the Tyrannosaur and its arm touching the unpowered electric fence. The adult riding with the kids swears Jesus over and over again. Going to the bathroom is evoked with the Gennaro and Regis characters. The Tyrannosaur comes through the fencing. That is the same. As the Rex moves between the two land cruisers, rain runs in rivulets, and we see the muscular leg and the pebbly skin, its head above the car roof, so you can't see it, and it moves around to the side of the cars. That description in the book is exactly what you see in the movie. That's so cool. Grant offers advice on how to avoid arousing the Rex's attention. The Rex's attention is drawn to the kids' car. Grant and Malcolm appear tense as they stare forward through the windshield. In the glare of the lightning, Lex and Tim see the beady, expressionless reptile eye moving in its socket. The Tyrannosaur bites the Land Cruiser's tires. Rexy gets her mouth into the vehicle going through the glass to attack the kids. And the dialogue between Grant and Malcolm is very good. <laughs> but there are some differences in this scene, too. Uh, Gennaro rides with the kids, not Regis, who doesn't even exist in the film. There is no dark shape moving swiftly between the cars with a ground-shaking rumble, but that ground-shaking rumble is adapted as the Big Rex approaches with that rippling water, right? Uh, Tim does look outside to see the Tyrannosaur, but we don't really require the night vision goggles to see what's going on. The Tyrannosaur brushes the fence with its arm rather than grips it. This is an awkward shot of some dinky arm slapping the fence, and it goes to show how challenging it would be for a massive, horizontally imagined Tyrannosaur to grip the fence. I'm like 100% positive there is no way the movie makers could get the Tyrannosaur puppet to do this. The head is way too big, and it's totally in the way. And this is a big part of my argument for the 1917 restoration of a vertically erect Tyrannosaur that Crichton uses in this novel. Refer to episode 16, Malcolm, for more discussion on Crichton's reliance upon Tyrannosaur specimen AMNH5027. In the film, Rexy hasn't eaten the goat until just this moment when she does. Gennaro begins speaking all of Regis's lines from the book, namely Jesus, over and over again, and that part is faithfully adapted. There is no intercom between the vehicles in the, in the movie. Instead of Regis peeing his pants, Gennaro runs to a washroom. The fences in the novel are 12-foot-high chain-link heavy steel cyclone fencing, which the Rex stomps down with its hind legs, rather than what must be like 20-plus-foot-high fencing that the Rex snips with her jaws in the film. Grant's advice on how to avoid arousing the Rex's attention is related only to Malcolm, and the kids perfectly demonstrate how to do exactly the opposite in the film. 
In the novel, the Rex is drawn to their car, specifically the mud where Tim and Regis had climbed out of the vehicle, inferring that the Rex likely can smell them. In the glare of the lightning, Lex and Tim see the beady, expressionless reptile eye moving in the socket, and they shine a flashlight into it, causing its pupil to dilate, unforgettably. No flashlight was in the book. Shutting the car door isn't what drew the Tyrannosaurus' attention, it was the flashlights. And in reviewing this scene, holy cow, through the rain in the windows as the Rex approaches their car, all you can see in the scene are its teeth scanning the car, and that's so cool. The rest of it's all blurred out with raindrops. The Land Cruisers in the film do not have rear-mounted spare tires, and the novel car doesn't have a glass roof, and Lex isn't knocked unconscious with half her head covered in blood. The Tyrannosaur throws the Land Cruiser into the jungle rather than knocking it over an embankment, and Grant doesn't exit the car to save the kids. In fact, in the novel, Grant and Malcolm can't really see what's going on. And it's strongly implied that Lex and Tim are killed by the Tyrannosaur in the book. The Dinosaurs Tyrannosaurus vision. In this novel, Tyrannosaurus, as well as other dinosaurs like the Myasaurus and I think the Stegosaurus, uh, seem to have very primitive sensory organs. Some forget you're even there if you quit moving. Others cannot see moving objects. And this is crafted into our characters surviving. And it's adapted faithfully from the novel into the film. However, studies have estimated that Tyrannosaurus had incredible vision, one of the largest terrestrial eyes of any animal, and could probably see like a hawk or an eagle spotting its victims from miles away should it choose to. As well, Tyrannosaurus had binocular vision, like you and me. Our eyes are both forward-facing, which is handy for seeing things with depth perception. Today, many birds, mammals, fish, and reptiles also have monocular vision, eyes on either side of their head. Think of a robin twisting its head as it stares at the earth for worms. They must turn their head to focus their visual attention, and the Tyrannosaur in this chapter does that too. She cocks her head and peers with first one eye, then the other, but doesn't attack. On page 190, this isn't consistent with what has been presently reported about Tyrannosaurus. I don't think a Tyrannosaur would ever require such a close inspection of anything before eating, mating, or surviving. This just doesn't feel like an authentic Tyrannosaur behavior. But damn it, it was really cool in the movie, and very bird-like behavior, which Crichton deserves credit for employing. Believe me, I know. Regis mutters that, of course... He'll stay in the car in the middle of a tropical storm when we know that he's the first person to run for the hills. Again, what Regis says is a lie, wrong, or will prove itself to be untrue. That's just how Regis rolls, but not for much longer. The iterations. Quote, inevitably underlying instabilities begin to appear. We're told on 179. This is a new act, and we're launching into an entirely categorically different type of story now that the fences are down and people are out in the park. I think I said earlier that when they left on the tour, not all of them would, ret would return. That was mostly incorrect. Only Regis won't return. Everybody else gets out of the park. This is contrary to our opening, which suggests that on an island of only 20 people, only a handful survive. Most people make it, far more than a, quote, handful. What quantity of people constitutes a metaphorical handful anyway? Nonetheless, this iteration suggests that underlying instabilities will appear, and that this is inevitable. Inevitability recurs in this novel. In the prologue, the global commercial climate makes it inevitable that someone would start misusing biotechnology. That modifying the animals was inevitable. They had to be patentable, lysine-dependent, and mature more quickly. Upon Dr. Grant's confrontation with the Big Rex, he waits for the, quote, inevitable as well, i.e. to be eaten to death. And that happened in this chapter. And resonant yaw makes mechanical systems inevitably collapse and fail, we're told on 248. And we know that Muldoon believes that another raptor escape is, quote, impending on 147. Inevitable being a 15th century word that means something that you can't get out of the way of. 
Impending has its roots in the 16th century, meaning something that's hanging over you, stretching nearer and nearer, kind of like the Sword of Damocles, I guess. And almost everything that's inevitable in this novel is bad. The mystery that's set up entering into this chapter includes why the frog DNA was important to Grant, and what happens when the animals defy their containment, as forewarned by Ian Malcolm. In the same vein as inevitable and impending is the word ominous, the impression that something bad is about to happen, and that's when the Tyrannosaur redirects its attack from the first land cruiser, which it destroyed, and ominously turns toward the second land cruiser, with Malcolm and Grant inside. And Alan and Grant in this chapter, quote, tenses his body awaiting the inevitable on 190 as the tyrannosaur's jaws are in front of him looking to eat him he cannot escape this is unavoidable but he survives the tyrannosaur does not see him with this there's a hope placed in the novel that even the ominous impending and inevitable underlying instabilities are survivable if we're lucky and there's some hope in that and our heroes need hope Recall in this chapter, Grant loses hope after watching the Tyrannosaur disappear, the first land cruiser, and silence an eight-year-old little girl's screams with the lowering of its jaws, and then facing the slow, ominous strides of the Tyrannosaur as it turns its attention to the second land cruiser. A seeping fa- fatigue overtakes Grant. Malcolm asks him, what can they do? And he can't think of anything. Hope at that point is lost. And in this moment, hope is regained. Grant survives the T-Rex attack, and with the right attitude, commitment, and courage, maybe he'll get out of this park alive after all. Looks like it's almost time to adjourn. I'd like to say one more big special thanks to Rebecca Hunt-Foster for joining us. Amazing having her on. Thank you so much for coming. Also, I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, we're getting to the dinosaur attacks now. Drop me a line and we can try and set something up. You can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. The Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the second lapse graphic novelettes, the infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Capers. And you can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me, I'm on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about novel Jurassic Park. And also not that too. Until next time.